Father, we come to you tonight, and oh, we are so glad to be here, and we rejoice in, in what we just sung. And we know you have given us so many wonderful tools to be able to praise you, to worship you, to, to draw close to you. And we have learned, we've learned from last week that we need to draw near to you and you will draw near to us and we want nothing better. So Lord, as we open our Bibles tonight, we, we know everybody who's here tonight, we know that you know what's going on and you know what each person needs and you are going to graciously, and I mean graciously, because you are so filled with grace, and we so desperately need grace. You are willing and ready to lavish us with your grace and meet us where we're at and show us how you are our all in all. We thank you tonight for the privilege to have had this study goal for, well, it's been going since well, I don't know, years and years, but yeah, even through all of a pandemic, Lord, we can rejoice and be thankful that this study stayed going. Where there was a will, there was a way. And even though we might have been stuck home, we, we, made, we made a way. And, and so tonight we rejoice as we now end James and anticipate the fall in a brand new study. Lord, we, we get excited because we know that as we hunger and thirst for your word, for more of you, you are ready to give us all that we need. So thank you for this lesson tonight. May we be so in tune with your spirit that we don't miss a thing. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And that's all that I need. Yeah, it is. Okay, now, um, last week, only 17 verses, remember? And yet, it was so full. And I'm just going to really, um, just, just in a little synopsis, just say, the first part, James is saying, anybody got problems with themselves? Anybody have a self problem? Anybody, um, if you want to know why your behavior is so yuck, if you, if you find that you're, you're complaining and you're negative and you're, and you're fighting and you're quarreling and, and nothing's right and everybody's wrong and you're just in one of those moods, you know, have you ever sensed that about yourself where there's a one thing right? You're just a old crab. And then he kind of says, he says, you know, I mean, he did say all that. He just said anybody who's quarreling and who's fighting. But predominantly, the principle is the same. You know, if you are out of sorts, if you're a big crab, if you are just, you know, just not at all thrilled with who you are in Christ Jesus, then something's wrong, and it's a four-letter word, and it just as well be a cuss word, too, because S-E-L-F is about as bad as it gets, you know? So, you know, he said, I just want you to know, James says, I want you to know what, which is, what is at the source of your trouble, just so that you can learn and identify that when, when you are getting this mood, when you're getting into this kind of snit, that it is a self-problem. And so those first few verses, and, and we've said this for how many weeks now, we've said that we think James wrote his, his 
book um, on experience and on personal experience. And, and because he's he personally had trouble with a lot of these issues because he was a typical human, religious human. And I think we can all identify. Most of us have been pretty religious a lot of our life. And then, but we have to be made aware of our human nature and it's just up against us all the time. And so he just kind of put it out there in, in chapter four. And then he went on and said, but here's your solution. I mean, sometimes, and, and we have nothing to gain, but sometimes we just think, well, I have a right to be like this. I mean, I, I have this excuse, and this is what's going on. And, and you can go, you can defend yourself. It's a day is long. And James is pretty much saying, you know what? You're really down deep miserable, you know? And this is not the way. This is not abundant living. This is not the, the way you can bounce out of bed in the morning knowing that, that he loves you and there's nothing that can change that. And, and he will be with you the whole day. And, and, you know, all these promises and truths that you've learned... But the thing is, you know, he says you have got to identify that you need you need to do something about it. And and there is a solution. And so in the next verses, he just pretty much says those words. Remember, we identified them last week. And then he says things like, well, actually, in verse 4, he kind of put us in our places. And you adulterous people. You unfaithful people, you traitors, you wear that label, Christian. You say that you trust the Lord for everything. You say that, that his plan and his timing is perfect. And you say all that. Well, look at your crabbiness. Look at, look at how self is just distorting you and all the joy that you should be living in. You adulterous people traitor and then and then he goes on then he says okay now if you really don't want to be called a traitor or an adulterous person or you know unfaithful to the Lord Jesus I mean oh that shakes you up I know that's what James is trying to say he uses terms he uses strong wording because he says don't just poo-poo this so he said, now when you look at the look at the fact you need help. And so he says, um, do you realize God opposes those who are caught up in themselves? Who think that they don't need to go to him or they don't even want to because uh, maybe he, he really doesn't care. And you know, because when we get in a snip, we say all kinds of things like that. He opposes the proud, and the proud is someone who thinks that they don't need him, that they're self-sufficient. And he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. So good little two-liner there. And then he says words like, okay, now submit. Yield to that spiritual authority submit, surrender to the one who owns you, who knows the best for you, who's got this plan going. Dare to submit to him. He's God. You're not. Dare to submit to him. And then resist the devil. See, we mentioned last week, and I don't want you to forget this, 
We have to do our part in a relationship with the Lord. We need, just like any relationship, he does his part, but we must do ours. And so when he uses words like, come on, submit, you got to do your part. you got to submit, surrender, trust him. Resist that lying devil. Resist that enemy who is trying to, to maneuver yourself all around and, and try to get you to think that you're in charge and, and that you, you deserve to have your way. And be willing to resist. Stand against. That. That's my definition of resist. Stand against him. You know better. I know better. Don't let him weasel and win. And then, because, oh, I don't want to miss. Hey, if you dare resist the devil, if you just, you know, I don't, I don't like talking to him. I told you that last week. But resisting the devil, there's the devil. There's so many good ways to resist him. And the main one is just say Jesus' name. Just say Jesus' name. He hates it. Sing, yes, Jesus loves me. Sing amazing grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Sing, sing that. Hum it. Let those words go through you. The, the devil hates that. And he will flee. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then come near. Come near to God. You make a conscientious effort. You come to him and say, I need you. Oh, I need you. And he will come near to you. You draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to you. And then, and then James really very bluntly said, you know what we need every now and then? Grieve and mourn and, and stop laughing. You know, this isn't funny. This isn't silly. This is serious. You're talking about your eternal life here, and you would have been lost, and there was nothing you could have done about it except that a Savior came, and now you have a choice to go to that cross humbly. And he wanted to make sure that we saw our sin. You know, every once in a while, it's so good to go back and see. Remember, I said last week, it's not that I, I want to say, oh, such a worm I am. Because, no, I'm not anymore. But you know what? It's not all bad to go back and see what I once was. Then I really appreciate what he's done. So, you know, James kind of says, once in a while, you just got to stop laughing and take it seriously and know where you would be if it hadn't been for Jesus. Just recall that. And then he said, uh, when you have seen yourself the way you are without a Savior, then, then, then and only then can you humble yourself if you can't see yourself the way you truly are, no, then humility, that humble word, is just shot out of the box. But when you have looked at yourself truly, and you humble yourself, he said, look, look how positive it is. If you are willing to humble yourself and know that in and of yourself you are nothing, but every good and perfect gift that we have, anything good that comes from us, it's from him. 
Look at, if we humble ourselves before him, look what he will do. He will lift you up. And who doesn't need that every now and then? But this is how you and I are lifted up is when we humbly come to him and admit our place before him. You know, do not, brothers, he said, brothers, sisters, watch your tongue. Watch your slander. Watch what you say about people. It's time you just root out all that harsh, harsh talk and all that unkind talk, all that critical spirit talk. Always finding fault talk. See, slander takes on a whole different definition. I mean, it's more than just saying bad words or whatever. It's, it's just our tone. It's being harsh and unkind and critical and always finding fault. Just plain being negative. So it's all in because that's the way he started the chapter, and he's kind of reiterating it again. And then he talks about judging, and we, we hit on that. And just quickly, judging is when you cannot see the motive, and you can't see what's in a person's heart. And judging is when you think you can Judging is when you are doing a job that only God can do. You read into that and you think you know. And, and James says, I think, who do you think you are anyway? Judging is when you can't see, when you can't see the reason for, you can't really see a motive behind it. And you have no right but remember, it's not judging. It is not judging when we can see. And when you can see someone's fruit or lack of fruit, or if you see the fruit of self more than the fruit of his spirit, then we have a right. It's not judging. It's visible. There are actions because fruit, what is fruit? It's what's in our heart is coming out of us. That's not judging. That's why we can call wrong, wrong, and right, right. Because the actions are right there. That's the difference between judging and fruit. You know, just kind of seeing the fruit. So judging is when you can't see and you try to. And, and you know, seeing the fruit and actions of people it's not judging when you can see behavior. When it's right there in front of you, that's a whole different story. And then he says, now listen. Now listen to this. I know you all make plans. Nothing wrong with making plans. But some of you get so caught up in your plans that if anything goes wrong or if something changes, I mean, you are crazy. You get all bent out of shape. And he said, I just want, I want you to listen. I want you to, as Christians, as belonging to Christ, he, he's, he owns us. He don't mind if we make plans, if we say a phrase after it all the time. The Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will. And you know what that does? That helps you and I to be able to accept when things don't go our, our, way, our way. 
So James says, now listen to this. Make sure that when you start making all your life's plans and even trips or whatever, he said, it will be so much easier if you just say, but the Lord's will is perfect. And if it's his will, great. But if it's not, oh, just, just watch. See if you really believe that God's will is perfect. And if he shuts a door, then you let him shut the door and believe that he's got a reason for. There's so much comfort when we make plans and are willing to say, but your will be done. And then um, he says, at the end of four, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. I don't think I said this last week, so I wanted to say it this week. Anybody, anyone, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. I think what James is pretty much saying, because we're all good at talking it. We're even good at thinking it. But until we do it, do you know that even the thinking and, and the talking is really nothing until we put this to practice? And he says, you can, you know, if you don't do what you said yesterday or what you thought and, and what you learned, now that you know it, if there's something that you know you ought to do and you don't do it, you're sinning, even though you thought it, you thought something, oh, that's good that you thought that, and her, you can talk the good talk. She says, unless you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it. Words are cheap. That's why we need to put this into practice. And again, he goes back almost to the first chapter. He says, don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers. Hear it, listen to it, take it in, and then do it. That's when the whole package works. Okay, now he goes on. It says, now listen, you rich people. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I'd, it's so easy to look at that and say, oh, he is really attacking those people that have a lot of money. Good thing he is. But you know, rich people, when he calls it, now listen, you rich people. Do you know how that word rich is so relative? I mean, you compare maybe some of the poverty of our nation against the poverty of, of third world or anywhere in Africa or something. You know, they'd give anything for our poverty. And even more than money, even more than he's saying, you people, I want you to see, you who have been so, you've been given so much, you have so much stuff, you have so much, you have so many things, you, you, and as wonderful as that all may seem, I think James is saying, you got to be careful with that because you start making that your God and you start trusting that instead Sometimes, you know, sometimes if, if um, 
you've, you've known somebody when they were not very wealthy and then they turned really wealthy. There's nothing more beautiful. And I know people like this, that it never changed their their love for the Lord. In fact, that's how he was able to use them in, in their wealth, you know. But he's, he's talking here, he's saying, you rich people who, who all of a sudden you're changed. All of a sudden you, you kind of get self-sufficient. You kind of feel that, well, you know, you, you carry a little more clout now. You have a little more power and say over things because after all, it's, there's a fine line. There's a fine line we can cross when it isn't right anymore. I think he's talking to all of us here whenever we get into that position where we don't trust him 100%. We're trusting a lot of other things. And we start getting a little cocky about what we have and what we've attained and what we've achieved and because look at he, he has to he puts it in some real language too he says now listen you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you your wealth has rotted your moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you hoarded wealth in your last days <laughs> he's pretty much saying just like what we all know you can't take it with you you can't take it with you, and and really, you know, when it becomes your God, and when you when you put all your trust in that, you know what? It just comes back to eat you up. Whenever again, self gets in there, and you think you have a right to it, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Isn't that true? I believe that that's a phrase where we have gotten. The more you have, the more you want. The more you think you need. You know, you get the, that. There's that frame of mind again. You know, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen when you mowed your when who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He's saying, just check to see if all of that stuff and all that mind, all that where you've taken yourself to believe in your mind that you really have achieved quite a bit. He said, you know what? I want you to know that sometimes You've gotten there by the expense of somebody else. And now they're coming, they're coming back. And they're just showing you that. And I mean, have you ever, have you ever, I mean, I, I know I've talked to people who own companies and, and they know that where would the company be without the workers? I mean, I, I mean, I told you this. Remember when I said I went to the dollar store a while back, and and uh, and uh, the big son of the door said we're not opening till noon because we don't have enough workers. Well, whoever owns fam Dollar Tree, whoever owns Dollar Tree, they didn't do any business until afternoon because there wasn't workers in there running the store. 
You know, and I think James is just saying, I know sometimes we level and we think people are more important and when they have a certain position, but when it all comes down to it, to make any business or operation work, it, it, just like Christianity, it takes all of us. I know some people get more of the recognition and even credit but anybody who is in that position, oh, if they don't see that none of this would be possible if it wasn't for those who are willing to be the workers behind the scenes. You, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. No, what, what does that sound like to you? I mean, it just, you just who's, who's, who are you living for? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, isn't it? When you read that, you think, oh, that is so ugly. And he even used words like you have fattened yourself. Now, who wants that? So he put it in terminology that you think, I don't want that. I mean, you've fattened yourselves up in the day of slaughter. I mean, it will come back to bite you. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. All you cared about was yourself and your own comfort and your own position and place in this world. And maybe James had that problem. Maybe James, maybe, maybe the carpenter business that, that his, his dad had, maybe, maybe James took it and they maybe was flourishing and, and, oh, they really became known. I don't know. But James understood the concept of the temptation and the fine line that you don't see yourself as rich, but you see yourself as blessed by God to be a blessing. Remember with Abraham, he was a wealthy guy. And God said to him, Abraham, I have blessed you to be a blessing to others. So James kind of paints an ugly picture. He continues painting the ugliness of self and what what the actions of it can do and what it does look like and how it hurts other people. And then he goes in verse 7, he says, be patient. Kind of, it's kind of like a, a little, little change of pace here. He's, he says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. I think he's probably saying that because see, people who have been in those verses before and they have been recipients of um, unkindness and, and selfishness and, you know, they've worked hard and it seemed like, you know, they didn't get recognized or appreciated and all that kind of thing, you know, how that goes. Think he comes back and says, you know, if you have had a, a tough life and hasn't been so easy and you have had to work hard and no, maybe your your name isn't too popular or whatever. He said, 
patience for you. Be patient until the Lord's coming. This is what we should be looking forward to. It's another reminder of how tied we get to this earth and all of the things that we are trying to accomplish and, 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 and you know, keep and get and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, you know, just remember, just wait, because if you think this is good or if you think you've been treated unfair or, you know, it's just not been a just way of employer employee or or whatever and you know and instead of just being complaining and critical and all that he's saying why don't you just the lord sees he understands he knows and and just be patient for the lord's coming because then it's all, all wrong is going to be righted all unfairness will be made fair and all unjustness will be made just because we have a just God. So he's pretty much saying, just hang on, be patient, wait. See how the farmer waits. And he used, now if you did the questions, if you did those, then you would see I made a little error. There was, there was three examples. He gave three examples, not two. And one of them was of the, of the farmer. And if you've been a farmer, you know, and he, he puts it like this. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Stand firm. Stand firm in what your human nature wants to do. Resist what the devil wants you to think. And submit to the Lord and saying, I will make all things right. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other. Or you'll be judged. Or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So I, I, I thought about, in fact, I, I thought about, okay, farmer, how, what does, how does he demonstrate waiting? And I wrote a few things down. A farmer waits with hope for a reward. I mean, when he goes into that field and he plants, he waits hoping that there's going to be a harvest. The farmer waits a long time. I mean, when that seed goes in and then by the time it's harvested, you know, and, and what do we like about waiting? You know, we, we want things done. And, but a farmer has got to wait for the timing. A farmer also um, has to wait, but he just doesn't sit there keeps working. There's always something for a farmer to do. A farmer waits depending on things that are out of his control. He has to wait depending on things he can't control. But all the while he's doing it, I would dare say if you ever looked at a farmer, you will see they're always looking up. Always looking up. A farmer who waits 
despite changing circumstances and many uncertainties. I mean, with farming, there is no for sure. And you just got to wait when, when things change. And a farmer waits knowing that it is not good for him to give up. And all these things, I think when James says you should be like that farmer, be patient like that farmer, we can put this into our own spiritual life too. A farmer waits knowing that there's a season for everything. And I thought, oh, yes. I'm going to put that. What does James want us to do? Think of the farmer. Okay, think about spiritually. If you're to be like a farmer, you are to wait with the hope of a reward. That's how you and I should get up in the morning. Despite the circumstances, despite what's going on, we wake up like a farmer and we have the hope of the reward. And we know we've been promised the reward. It will be worth it all. And sometimes we have to wait because it does take a long time. Sometimes our journey is a long time. Until then, my heart better go on singing. Until then, until then, sometimes it takes forever. And he says, no, like the farmer, you have to wait a long time. Some things aren't just snap of the finger. And then... Like a farmer, we have to wait. We have to wait. And then not just sit there, but we've got to keep working and doing something. And like a farmer, we need to depend on things that are out of our control, always looking up. Wouldn't that help us in our circumstances, though? If we could learn how to wait like the farmer? And the whole thing with we have to learn to wait despite when life doesn't go the way we want, when circumstances and all of our uncertainties happen. Instead of being thrown off, we wait on the Lord. And we wait on him knowing it is not good to give up because if I give up, then I'm falling back to my old self and then there I go. And there's all those downwards and those, those words that take me to all that despair and defeat and give up. It's good not to give up. And then I wait knowing that my whole life is a different season. And to learn to accept these seasons as they come. We wait on these seasons, you know, and they're inevitable. That's not easy. When you're in a good season, oh, yeah, then it, then this, oh, this good season. But my brothers and I right now are, we, we had a big talk yesterday, and, you know, my mom is failing, and we have to take the next season, you know. Where, she, where does she go next? And oh, it's, it, I know some seasons are not easy, but every season is something we can't do anything about, but we wait on the Lord in all of the seasons of life. You know, it, all, 
it's so easy to pass from one season to the next when you are secure, when you are secure in the hope of your reward. You're secure in the promise that he's preparing a place for you. What a difference it makes when we go from season to season, when we are secure in the Lord and in his hand and his will. And I'm going to repeat this, and don't grumble. Oh, don't grumble. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So, illustration number two, he's saying, um, look at those prophets. I wrote those down too. I mean, we have major prophets and we have minor prophets. And I want to make sure you know that major prophets have larger books with more words in them. Minor prophets have smaller books, but that doesn't mean the message isn't as important. So when you think of major prophets, when you think of Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and then his writing of Lamentations, they're big books. But these, these prophets are no more important than the minor ones, which are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Hagar, Zechariah, Malachi. Little books, but they all had the same message. And a prophet, a prophet declared the words of the Lord. That's what a prophet's job was. Declare the words of the Lord. And sometimes the words of the Lord, in fact, most of the time, the words of the Lord were doom and gloom and big fat warning. I mean, and, and Jeremiah never had one convert. Often don't, don't we do a job, and boy, we need the accolades, we need the affirmation, and oh, if we don't get it, you know. And Jeremiah, I mean, he's called the wailing prophet because, I mean, it was a hard job. He did. He had to tell the people of Judah, you're going into captivity. Oh, baloney, oh, prophet, you doom and gloom man, be quiet. They didn't listen. Guess what happened? They went into captivity for 70 years. And that's what we're going to study in the fall. Daniel went into captivity a young man, and he came out a old man. A lot happened. I'll tell you, you know, even sometimes when we feel our lives have gone into some kind of captivity, the Lord knows what he's doing, and he knows how long to keep us there, and he knows just when to bring us out. So he used that as an example. And then he said, as you know, we, can, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Oh, yes, those prophets persevered. They declared the word of the Lord, even though it was tough and it was a big warning. And then he used his third illustration. And he used the, the Job. He used the story of Job and I'm just going to take the time. It won't take but a few minutes, but I, want, I just want to give you a synopsis of the book of Job. Many of us know who Job is. 
He was from the land of Oz, and he, he, um, he was blameless. He was, he was upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. Those were the first verse of Job. I mean, this guy, what a guy. And he had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people in the east. Okay, first three verses, we get a real look at what Job was, who Job was, and what he had, and His, his seven sons and three daughters, the way that I kind of read this, the next verses was, I, I looked at that and I thought, ooh, they were party kids. Oh, they love parties. In fact, it said that early in the morning, every morning, Job would get up and he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each one of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He knew they were they were. They were rascals. And you know what he did when, he, when you, he had a house full of rascals? He prayed for them every day, and he surrendered them. He gave a burnt offering for each of them. He surrendered them, knowing that all I can do is live an example, and he did. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. He was a good dad, and yet they were rascals. But he prayed for them. So, I mean, you know, you can't help but love the guy. First five verses, you think, yeah, this is good. And then, then this is when it starts, oh, starts getting tough. Job is tested. The word is tested. And God will test us. I'm not a bit ashamed to say it. And he does it because he loves us. He wants us to make sure we do what we say. Remember just what we learned in James. And so he'll test us. Oh, it's easy to talk. It's easy to think it. But let's see if you're willing to really do it. He tests us. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, that is troubling a little bit, don't you think? Wherever the angels were, and don't you have a tendency to think that the angels are in heaven, and they were, they were presenting themselves to the Lord, and Satan also came, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Do you know, when I studied that the first time, I thought, Oh, now I know why we need a new heaven and a new earth. I always knew why we needed a new earth, but why in the world do we need a new heaven? And I'm thinking, well, I want to get rid of that heaven if Satan is still able to waltz there. Why else do we need a new heaven? Because what do you know about your Savior? He weeps with those who weep. He, he hurts when you hurt. And we love that. We love to know that we have a Savior who has been there, who understands, and who, who feels deeply and, uh, when we do. And what do we know about the new heaven? 
we love to hear this, don't we? That in the new heaven, there's going to be no more mourning, no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying. Oh, that's why we need a new heaven. Because Satan will be in hell. And the new heaven will be all the fullness of God. It's so hard to believe. But right now, you know, you can take that for what it's worth. We don't know for sure. But, I mean, I'm, taking, I'm quoting scripture from what I know. But, you know, when I read that, it got me thinking. I thought, what? Satan, when the Lord said to him, what are you doing here? Well, I just came from... I'm sure he said, I just, I just came from uh, Holland. I just came from Hudsonville. Oh, boy, was I getting, was I having a ball there? I mean, I think that that's, this is what he is. Just, I'm roaming through the earth, going back and forth. Lord said to Satan, ooh, this, this part I don't like either so much. Have you considered my servant Job in all your roaming around? Did you ever think about my servant? And I wanted to say, why even bring him up? Why did you say that to Satan, Lord? Why would you say? See, the Lord knows when we need a test and no evil comes from him. So he said, have you considered my servant Job, and saying, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty clever. He says, uh, no, because um, after all, look at all he's got. I mean, he's just, of course, he's going to love and praise you. I mean, he's got 10 kids, and he's got all these, you know, camels and donkeys and sheep and all that. He's not hurting, he's not suffering. So, of course, he's praising you. Then, then, then the Lord, then Satan replied, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Satan says, I dare say, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you. The Lord said to Satan, very well. See, those are words I don't like to hear, that, that the Lord does that. But he knows what we need. And when you finish the story of Job, Job is better because of all of it. And this book is in there so that James can say, you've got to know how God works. And it's for your good. One day when Job's son and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. So all the oxen and the donkeys, all of, the, all of your oxen and donkeys were carried off. They put the servants to the sword. All those servants who were taking care of those oxen. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, I mean, this all happened, boom, 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 while he was still speaking, a fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And the messenger said, and I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. And then while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. So Job, no more camels, 
We don't have one more camel. And he put all those servants who were taking care of the camels, he put them to death. And I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, now this is a bad day. I mean it. I mean, I can't even fathom. So every piece of his livelihood is gone. And all the servants, and while he was speaking, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you, your children, all ten of them, are gone. This Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. I'm so glad that that's written in there. Because even someone who is blameless and righteous has feelings and he hurts and all has been taken away. And he, he shaved his head and he tore his robe and he fell to the ground. But the Bible says he fell to the ground in worship. And said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you and I do that? Can you love the Lord so much and trust him so much that in calamity you can say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Whatever has happened here, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He didn't take his little fist and put all the blame in that, you know. Now, I'll tell you, the second test, it's like saying, you know, he, he just thought, okay, you know what, yeah, that's material things and, and, and children and all that, but, you know, um, you didn't let me touch him. Now, that's going to make a big difference if you allow me to touch him. A man will give all he has for his own life. That's what Satan said. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Oh, and then, listen to these words. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from, his so from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. So he had these painful sores all over his body. In fact, this is gross, I know, but this is what the Bible says. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. This is horrible. Now, his wife, you know, I think this is why his wife wasn't taken in maybe because it shows us this is how you deal with suffering. Job teaches us how to deal with suffering. His wife shows us the opposite way to deal with suffering. There's only two ways to deal with suffering. You either deal with it with the Lord and trusting and surrendering him or you do it the way his wife did. She said, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He said, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept just the good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin. Now, 
He had three friends. Job had three friends that came on the scene, and they they were wonderful at first. In fact, it said when they saw Job, they they were so taken by by what they saw that when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word. Oh, they should have stayed that way with their mouth shut. Sometimes, isn't someone's presence the best thing? Like you almost want to say, don't talk, don't talk, just sit here with me. I mean, I have that with, with Tom. I mean, sometimes we can just, oh, it's, you know, sometimes been, it's been a couple of hard weeks. And, you know, I'll tell you, when you have somebody who doesn't try to be a smart mouth telling me a bunch of answers, but he's there. Oh, I got that. I felt that. You know, and this, these friends were just sitting there. Sometimes there's just no answers. Just being there. But no, no, they opened up their big mouths. And the thing is, if they had, if they were, if they were saying the right things, and then in the next, oh goodness, from chapters 4 to 36, I think it is. So let me see. I mean, the, the, all these chapters, from, from, four, from 4 to 37, from all those chapters, 4 to 37, it's these three friends telling him advice that is so wrong. And so in, in chapter 38, 39, and 40, and 41, the Lord comes back and speaks. And the Lord answered Job answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And the Lord said, I want you to answer this. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? When I marked off its dimensions? Have you ever given orders in the morning or shown the dawn in its place? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Who puts the channel for the torrents of rain and the path for the thunderstorm? I mean, it's just, it's just worth going through this. He, he has these chapters, 38 to 41, and he says, Job, listen, who am I? There is no one like me. There is no human being. There is no advice giver. That's why I am so confident. When Jesus gave the Holy Spirit the name Counselor, he meant for us to be able to go to him, the best Counselor, the one who's got the answers for us. Do you, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? I mean, he, all of these illustrations, it was so good to be able to hear the Lord say, Answer these questions, Job. Every one of the answers is me, and there's none other. And you should be taking your counsel from me. And in chapter 42, the last part of Job, Job replies to the Lord after all, all that. He replies to the Lord, I know, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. 
my ears have heard. And now my eyes have seen. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, he, Job was a great guy. And I know we see the word blameless and it kind of freaks us out. But I think we can see that he was on the right track. But no one, as long as they're in this human body, I think this is such a good lesson. Job still had more to learn. And I believe what, what Job had to learn was that you can't take counsel from just anybody. Counsel from the Lord is counsel that you can trust. After the Lord said these things to Job, he said to one of those friends, he said, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right to my servant Job. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for, your, for, your, for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of what, not, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has and Job prayed, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed him with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys, and he gave them him seven more sons and three daughters. And did you ever wonder how come, how come, he only gave them, I thought he doubled everything. Then shouldn't it be 14 sons and six daughters? But he only gave him the same of what he had. To me, that says that Job's family is going to be in glory. And he did double it. He, he, he just gave him seven sons more and three more daughters because he already had, even though the bodies weren't here anymore, their souls will live forever. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and then he died, full of old and full of years. But I think when you read James in this last chapter, those illustrations he gave were not something you read quick. Job knew what he was talking about with a farmer, with those prophets, and with Job. And then he says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, or you will be condemned. He is addressing, uh, he, James is addressing in that little verse, he's addressing your and my character. That people know that when you say something, you mean it. And when you say something, they can count on it. That when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. I love these words. I want this in my character. I want to be, I want my integrity to be pure. I want to be trustworthy and I want to be honest. I don't want to play games. When I tell you something, I want you to be able to trust that what I'm saying it's true and right. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. 
<laughs> I, I think either, is anyone in trouble? Is anyone happy? Um, I mean, in all forms of life, what should we be doing? Because what is prayer? Prayer is a connection with God. So whether in good times or in bad, that connection should never, ever stop. That something should break that connection. Self, don't let self break that connection. That's what prayer is. So when you're in trouble, of course you want that connection so that you can go to him. Of course when you're happy, you should, because when you're connected to him, you're so thankful that you sing. See, so no matter whether good times or bad, when you're connected to him, the right thing will come out of you. Is anyone sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here we go. This is touchy, isn't it? This is where, you know, but it really isn't. It isn't. When you really consider James, what happens when we are overtaken with a disease and illness, when we're sick? Um, where does our tendencies, where do we have a tendency to look? <laughs> It's usually at us and the problem and, and the hopelessness or whatever. And we get self-consumed. A lot of times, a sickness, it, it kind of takes your breath away. And you think, oh, no, this is the end. And, and all of a sudden, you just kind of feel yourself start, start to sink. And that's why he says, okay, um, he who is sick, this is what you got to do. Because this is the human tendency. Um, your first thing you need to do is call elders. Now, if you want to, you can literally call the elders of your church, but I think he's talking about elder means anybody that you know loves the Lord and will love you enough to be able to get you back on track, to get your eyes off yourself and onto him. See, an elder, an elder a person who is, who is maybe farther in the spiritual journey from experience or age or whatever, they're farther in there. They're going to come and they're going to love you enough to put their arm around you and say, come on, let's, let's get back. Let's go to the one we're supposed to. An elder will do that. And they'll anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, that oil could be medicine. I mean, in those days, oil was known for, you know, for medicine. But I think when we think of oil, there's so many illustrations in Scripture that kind of refer to the Holy Spirit. Anoint me with the Holy Spirit. I know he resides in me, but sometimes when self is so, I'm so worried and I'm so scared and, I, and I, I'm so fearful of the unknown and it's starting to overpower me and overcome me. Please, elder, please anoint me with this Holy Spirit that will take over my mind. That I will get a, a measure of the Holy Spirit, that I will think on him instead of me. That the Holy Spirit will remind me. Because remember, the Holy Spirit's job, number one job is to bring us to Jesus. But the number two job of the Holy Spirit is to help us recall what we know. And so that elder will come and he will, he will anoint with the Holy Spirit to help you recall what you know. 
that what self and what the enemy is trying to get you not to think about so that you will be ineffective, that you will be scared to death, that you will be worried like crazy. But when you do it God's way, when you do it according to what James says, look at it, he says, and then the prayer offered in faith will make the person well. See, we all love to think that and put it in our, just our physical eyes and say, well, all I need to do is call a couple of from my church and have them bring a little oil, anoint me, and then they'll pray and we'll believe and I will have this disease gone and I will walk out healthy. Now, we all know the Lord can do that. We all know he can, but every one of us has been in an experience where we didn't get it answered the way we wanted. And then you want to say, what in the world does this mean? I'm not going to study James 5 again. It's ridiculous. Yeah, because you're looking at this through the eyes of your human self, and right away you think it's got to be physical healing. And the healing that James is talking about is the healing that you and I have when we are doing it God's way. The healing that you and if when the elder comes and reminds you and helps and anoints you with the spirit and you then are reminded of what the Lord has promised you and that every day of your life is numbered and you're not going to leave a second early or a second late, that all of these promises that he'll be with you through it all, I mean, every promise that the Holy Spirit will help you recall. And then it says, you'll be healed. Do you know why you're healed? Because You've relinquished, you've submitted, you've surrendered your life to the Lord, and there is no greater healing. And that's why when he goes on to say, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. What do we need to be healed with most of all, even more than cancer? What do you and I need to be healed from? Our sins. And this is what James is saying. Get things back in perspective. Start hearing the Lord. Hear him remind you of what he's promised you. Hear him say you're his child and that nothing will touch you without his permission and that he knows what he's doing and he knows the numbers of hair on your head. He knows and all he wants us to do is submit. And when you submit and you let him heal you of your sins, all of a sudden you think, and that's the greatest healing of all. I don't care what else happens. James just wants you and I to see where our greatest healing lies and how only Jesus can give that healing. And as much as we think we want to live forever, if you really know Jesus, I hope that's not the case. I hope you do not hold on to this life for dear life. Because there is so much more. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It doesn't say, and so you, you get somebody who really knows how to pray, and he's righteous before the Lord, that you'll get what you want. No, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective because he will, he, will, he will take you to the throne of God and you will see God in all his majesty and you will say, you will throw up your hands and say, your will be done. I am yours, Lord. Remember, we're not our own anymore. 
All he wants is to surrender to him and trust that he knows what he's doing and that our life has purpose, his purpose. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Two words, I think, that really shows us when we come to the Lord about something, you come earnestly. No, not with strings attached. You come earnestly before an almighty God and you lay it before his throne and you submit to his perfect will and you allow him to use you in whatever way. And you watch that peace. That's healing. That's so healing. And the other word is again. Again. You pray earnestly and you pray again. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When you ended this chapter, did you think, well, that's an odd way to end? I mean, you don't even have him say, and the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I mean, but consider the source. Consider James, whose life has been transformed, and who says, I am sick of talking between the lines, and I'm sick of beating around the bush. It is time that we hear it straightforward, five chapters of no nonsense, and I want to end it this way, he says. I want every one of you, after you've done James 1, 2, 3, 4, and all of five, I want you to know that this is what you are called to do. And that's why it's so important that we are so afraid of judging that we don't do anything. If whoever, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. And maybe even if he's, if he's a Christian and we know he will never experience eternal death, but if you don't get him off that wrong path and the consequences that always happen on the wrong path, so often death can be a death of a relationship, death of, of I mean, there's so many things. And if you get that person back on track, you are going to be able to save him from death. I mean, and you know, you know what James means. I mean, obviously we can't do any of that, but the Lord will use our mouth and our hands and our feet. Every week, I, I have to tell you, I have an out-of-the-body experience up here. And it's just so exciting because, you know, I mean, I know I studied hard, but it is amazing to me of, of the boldness that he has changed me with. And, and maybe it's getting older that I'm running out of time or whatever. But, you know, if I see someone, and I know sometimes it's not always easy to be able to go to someone you love and say, you know what, you're off track. And I'm trying to save you from the consequences. Because, you know, if, if they come back to Jesus, if they come back to the cross, and again, they humble themselves, and then watch the Lord lift them up. James said, that's the way I want to end it. I want all of you to know you got work to do. 
not only just to be bossy and look for, you know, the, you know, the spiritual police. You're just waiting for them. No, no. But if someone, if someone is right there and, and you love them enough to say, or I think James has said it's a wake-up call. Keep your words going. Keep, keep your light shining. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed to say that the answer is Jesus. And if we're willing to stand the way James is standing up in these five chapters and he's given warnings and he's given illustrations and he's saying, just look in the mirror and realize who you are and what he's done for you. The least we can do is live for him. And along that way, if you bring someone along or if you, you know, if you invite someone to Bible study, maybe some of you have had that. You didn't know if you dared ask, but then they came and, and I can think of a couple ladies right now. They were invited by somebody and they were about, I mean, I have no idea what, maybe they didn't go to church at all. Maybe, you know, I know someone was Catholic and another, I don't, we never ask, we don't care. But we know that they need Jesus and they need his word. James says, don't miss it. Don't miss it. I was off. I thought I was so right and I was so wrong. And so I humbly come and write five chapters to you to hope that you don't make the same mistakes I did. Heavenly Father, thank you for James. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that just used him mightily. His, his past, his, his present, and then his affirming future. How you can take us just as we are, but you're not content to let us stay there. You want to grow us and mature us. Father, we thank you for these letters. We thank you for so much of what you have taught us. And so, Father, tonight we, we know, and we're going we're gonna to end tonight with this wonderful song and this wonderful singer singing, you, you have just given us one goodness after another. Lord, may we listen close, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what we've even been through or what we're going through or what's going to be coming, we know, we're confident of the goodness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.